me ask you to turn with me back to uh, the prophet Joel. And uh, this evening we'll start by reading all of chapter 1. All right, let's hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Lord in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We come before you tonight as an undeserving people, recognizing that any good we have in this life is from your hands. It is a mercy. And we praise you for it. Now would you be merciful to us, O Lord. And as we investigate the words of the prophet Joel, these words that you caused to be written down, we ask you to give us understanding. As we look back, would you help us to have eyes for the future? We pray in Christ's name, amen. Um, on, Tuesday, on Tuesday afternoons from 1 to 2 p.m., 
uh, a group of students gather here at our church and we are going through a course called the Christian World Worldview, developing a Christian worldview. It's been my conviction uh, for some time now that, that one of the pressing needs for our children is, especially for Christian children, is that they learn how to think like Christians. And we're going through a book written by a man by the name of Philip Ryken. It's actually written for college students. Uh, it's not a sophisticated book. Uh, but, but in it, he gives, he gives a statistic, and I'd be interested to know what, what your response would be, but he gives a statistic. We talked about this, um, I guess, this last week or the week before, and he's, he talks about the number of church-going adults who have a Christian worldview and the percentage of, of students who have a Christian worldview. And I I wonder what you might say the percentage of church-going adults is that have a Christian worldview. Um, the survey said 9%. 9%. So in a church our size where you have you know, somewhere between 65 and, and 75 uh, regular attenders, that puts the number at somewhere south of seven people. And amongst students, he says that the, the percentage, it's about 2%. About 2% of Christian students, Christian teenagers have a Christian worldview. And, you know, as I stand before you to preach God's word to you, I, I'm, I'm and I know Pastor Danny is the same way, but you feel this pressing weight of the culture. And, and, it's, and, it, and it's not what we observe in Washington, D.C. It's what we're observing happening in the church. And I was, I was going back through some old articles today, and I'll, this is an article from 2018, and, and I, want, I wanted to read just a couple of, of quotations to you here um, Remember that, I guess in the early 2000s, we went through a period, the New Atheist Movement. Do you all remember the New Atheist Movement? And it was spearheaded by guys like Richard Dawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens. And a lot of organizations were putting out these debates. Uh, uh, Doug Wilson engaged in a, in a debate, in several, a tour of debates. Uh, and it was titled, Is Religion Poisoning Everything? Um, and... And this writer from 2018, okay, so this is four years ago, almost five years ago now, is saying we're, we're entering into an age where it's, it's not dogmatic atheism that's the great threat to Christianity. We were all worried. We were saying these new atheists, they're, they're fundamentalists, they are passionate, they, they had buses driving around London with... Um, uh, you know, Christ is meaningless slogans going around. And we're saying, this is the great threat. And uh, Paul, Paul Rowan Bryan, um, he wrote an article. I'm just going to give you a couple of sentences out of it. He says, um, today, however, the greatest threat to Christianity is found not in the arguments of the atheist, but in the assumptions of the apathetic. The danger is not a hostile reception of belief in God, 
but an incurious indifference to the idea. Just so, so, I don't care if there's a God or not. He goes on, many people don't specifically disbelieve in the supernatural or God. They just don't care. And don't want to talk or think about it. In the United States, what he calls ap-atheism, this apathy, is especially prevalent among the young, where overall, religiously unaffiliated Americans are significantly younger than religiously affiliated Americans. So I'll give you a statistic, um, something that I've been looking at recently, is if you take, <clears throat> if, you, if, you, if you look on the map, and you pinpoint New Covenant Presbyterian Church on that map, and you draw, you drag a circle out about 20 miles. <clears throat> the population within that circle is about is a little over 60,000 people. Statistically speaking, of those 60,000 people that live within about 20 miles of New Covenant Presbyterian Church, probably 50% of them never go to church. So probably 30. 30,000 people. Thinking about this morning, we were talking about how essential shepherding, that missions, the missions and outreach work and shepherding are really just one, one office. That, that's the mission field. And into that mission field, we're not looking at a people who are, who are interested in saying, yeah, let, let's debate it. Let, let's debate it. You, sh- give me the evidence for an omnipotent, omniscient God. And it, let's talk about the science, science and all of these things. It, it, you, you just encounter people who say, I, I, I just don't care if he exists or not. And that's people sitting in the pews. What does that have to do with Joel? Um... Well, I think as we look at Judah at, at this moment in their history, we're, we're finding a people who, who had become apathetic. Um, they had departed from the Lord their God. They didn't seem to care whether he existed or not. They, he, they didn't, he wasn't on their minds. They weren't thinking about him. And so the Lord decrees judgment against them. God will wake his people up. And so as we, again, as we observe the things that are going on in our culture and we think, we, we lament, we, we lament um, everything that's going on with, with gender confusion and perverse sexuality, we lament those things. But, but God has a way of using those things to bring oppression against his people so that they will feel that pressure and once again turn to the Lord their God and cry out to him. And so it's not so much, I was talking to somebody this week and, 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 and saying, Don't, do you think there's a resurgence? Do you think there's a resurgence amongst people because they're, they care about these gender issues and these sexuality issues? And, and, and honestly, I don't think so. You see people caring about these things. You know, Kanye West, um, 
getting on board and whatnot. But it, it, the, the confusion that we see in our culture is related to the, the, the failure of the church to preach the truth. And so many people go to church today, and what's their objective? Well, they, it's cheaper than therapy. And God is not amused. In the first chapter of Joel, we've noticed this repetition of the fours, and we talked about that a little bit last week. This repetition of the fours, perhaps some reflection there from, on Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. This morning we're going to, this evening, I don't know what time of day it is anymore. Um, this evening, we're going we're gonna to finish out with the last two groups that, that he addresses. Remember, he addressed the elders first, and then he addressed the drunkards. And what was the, the relevance there? Well, these men who are on the wall of Israel um, are, have, are drunk. The ones who you're, you're depending on to protect the city and sound the alarm, God says... Uh, wake up, fellow, there's an army down there. God took away from them worship. Uh, a famine had come upon them. God robbed them of worship. He wouldn't permit them to worship him because they wouldn't worship him rightly. And then so the last two groups that he addresses are the tillers of the soil and the priests. And there's a, an extended um, Address to the priests. Let's look at the first one in verses 11 to 12. We see Christ, uh, see Christ address the tillers of the soil. Look at what he says. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. You get, you get this picture that if you were to walk through the southern kingdom at this point, you would just you would, you would go up to a tree, and maybe there's an apple, t- apple hanging there on the tree, and you touch it, and it turns into dust. Uh, the, the picture that we're painted here is that they've, there, there's been, this is a land on which no rain has fallen for a long, long time. And you think maybe of that picture in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17 when Elijah just appears on the scene. He kind of, kind of comes out of nowhere and he goes to Ahab and says, the Lord's not going to give you any rain. And so uh, Elijah winds up being fed by the ravens. Well, this was a situation in Israel or, or in Judah at this time. And, and notice what he says to these men. Here, this evening we started with a call to worship, and God said, sing to me, give thanks to me. Well, notice what he says to this group over and over. Lament. Be ashamed. Wail. Weep. Cry. And why are they supposed to be ashamed? Why, these tillers of the soil, uh, why are they to be ashamed? Well, because the harvest of the field has perished. And it's almost as though he's putting it on them. You guys are the ones that are supposed to be bringing in the crops. What's the problem? The vine has dried up. We see this same language again. The vine has dried up and the fig tree languishes. All the fruit is gone. 
But what we see over and over in this passage is that there is a devastation that has happened to the land. Why is that significant? Why isn't God just causing hail and brimstone uh, to fall upon the people? Why isn't he punishing that, them that way? Why isn't it that he's caused the, the rivers to turn to blood? Why the emphasis on the land being devastated? Because the land represents a central promise to Israel. Remember as we go back to Abram, this, this was the promise. Abram, I'm going to give you a land. And your, your, your ancestors are going to inherit it. And remember how, remember how his family clung to that promise? So much so that the only land Abram actually owned at the end of his life, do you remember what it was? Cemetery plot. He believed in it, though. And Joseph would tell them, don't, and, and, and Jacob would say, don't bury me in Egypt. When y'all get out of here, get my bones and take me to the land. This was the central thing. This was the promise that Israel clung to. And now, God's reminded them, look, I'm not taking you to your land. I'm taking you to my land. And if you don't walk in faithfulness with me, you squatters are going to be kicked out. And that which was intended to be a blessing to Israel turned into a curse. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, I gave you a quotation from a man by the name of Robert Simple. Robert Simple was born in 1777. You think, man, what a time to be alive, right? He, he was born when America declared independence, and then about 1785, well, a little longer uh, after that, he was about 15 years old when he wrote those words. I told you, he said that, that after the war, and America experienced this religious freedom that it had craved, and finally were a self-governing nation. You remember what happened? All of a sudden, nobody cared anymore. They became apathetic. He seems that, said that there seems to be little concern for religion anymore. We have to be careful that when we fail to give glory to God for what He has given us, rest assured it will no longer be a blessing but a curse. God in His kindness reminds you that He is the blessing. So Israel's land had turned into a dust bowl. The next group that he addresses are the priests. Notice with me in verses 13 to 18. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. I want you just to, let's compare just for a second. If you would go back with me to verse 9. Notice, notice the grain and the drink offering. There, formerly, um, in verse 9, we read the grain offering and drink offering are what? Cut off. And so the picture there is that God has taken some action because of the famine. You can't bring a grain offering because there's no grain. And now if you go 
back to verse 13. Notice what he says there. Because grain offering and drink offering are what? Withheld from the house of God. So, if these are speaking of the same period, there's a difference here. On the one hand, God had taken worship away from them in verse 9, but in verse 13, the focus is different. He is saying, you don't bring it to me. Now, what's the significance of these grain offerings and these drink offerings? So, at the end of Exodus, um, you remember what happened? In chapter 40, they've, they've done the schematic. The, t- the tabernacle's constructed. The Shekinah glory of God descended upon that tabernacle. And, and then what? The book ends. And you think, okay, well... There's a little more information we need because aren't Moses and Aaron, aren't they supposed to go in and do all this stuff? And yeah, they are. And so Leviticus opens and there's God calling out from the tabernacle saying, come to me, come inside. But the way that they are to do it is they approach him through these sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins and it is showing us that approach. And especially these Grain offerings and these drink offerings, they're offered together and they are a picture, do you know of what? They are a picture of the people of Israel consecrating themselves to God. And so the picture is of a people who are saying, you know what, we're not doing that. And so God calls them three times in this passage to wail, to mourn, and to lament. In verse 14, He directs the priests to consecrate a fast. That is to come to the temple and to seek the Lord's forgiveness. When Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, in his prayer of dedication, he said, let this be a place that when your people are defeated by the armies, that they come to your temple and seek your forgiveness. God directs them to do that. In verses 15 to 18, God directs them to anticipate judgment. And notice what he says, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Now, what's interesting about this part is that that is a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 13. Perhaps uh, Joel himself had heard Isaiah walking the streets and making this proclamation himself. But it helps us to understand the context In Isaiah 13.1, we read that it was an oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. What's happening here? What's happening is that Babylon are on the doorstep of, of Judah. They are ready to attack. They are ready to carry the people away. And what does the Lord call them to do? Think, Think carefully about this. What does God call them to do? Take up arms? Get your camels? Polish your chariots? Oil the wheels? Make sure the horses are fed? No. 
calls upon them to seek His forgiveness. Oh, Judah, the Lord might say, destruction is upon you. Your food is cut off. We read in 16, verse 16, you can't feast. Even if you wanted to hold Passover, you can't do that. If you wanted to um, celebrate the Feast of Booths, if you wanted to celebrate the Day of Atonement, you can't do it. You don't have the material to do it. God has taken away the gladness of His people. He has taken away their gladness. And so we notice in verses 19 to 20, the result of this affliction is what? Supplication. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field, even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The result of God's judgment against this people is a turning to Him and supplication. What has happened? We read in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 19, at the very end, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. God is giving the people into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon in verse 19. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. When Israel conquered a, a, a city and they devoted that city to destruction, they, they burned it. They consecrated it to the Lord. Now we find that in Second Chronicles at the end, what's happening is that the city of God is being burned. In other words, the image is sort of like this. Because the people of God wouldn't consecrate themselves to God, he consecrated them by fire. Babylon burned Jerusalem. And I think there are a few points of application that we give you here just at the end as we think about what's happening in this scene. One, I think we ought to remember that worship is a privilege for us. It is not a need for God. I remember as a child talking with certain people and as my, my family members would try to explain to me why, um, about creation, God created the world. The, the question always comes up, doesn't it? Why did God create the world? 
And I didn't have a family that was raised on the children's catechism, okay? So we would speculate on, well, God, God, God wanted our companionship. Well, the problem with that is that it expresses the, the idea that God has some need, that there's a deficiency in God that we have to come along and fulfill. And so we go over to Acts chapter 17 and we see uh, Paul there in Athens at the Areopagus when he proclaims to the people, God is not worshipped by human hands as if He needed anything. And so we must remember that, and, and God was teaching Israel to remember, He doesn't need our worship. If you and I did not exist... God would be no less for that. But He has created you and me to observe His glory and worship Him for it, for our good. Secondly, it is appropriate for Christians to lament and wail over sin. Uh, Christian Smith, who is a... uh, who is a Christian sociologist, when he's talking about the nature of Christianity today, he came up with the phrase, many of you know it by now, he called what what most Christians participate in today is moralistic, therapeutic deism. You've heard that phrase before. In other words, what's happening is we think that Christianity is really a religion religion to teach us uh, Uh, primarily the the difference between good and bad. It's just about morals. It's therapeutic. I go there so that I can get charged up for my week because, again, that's cheaper than a therapist. And it's a deistic religion. What does that mean? Well, it means that God's not actually present. He's somewhere in the cosmos, but I don't worship Him to interact with Him. It is appropriate for us to lament and wail as an act of our worship of God, to lament sin. God calls His people to lament. Thirdly, it is important that we not bury our heads in the sand. that we observe what is going on not only in the culture, but in the church. It is important to take note of these things, to direct our prayers with reference to what is going on in the church, to seek God's perspective on these things, to understand that He is not, as we have said, a God who, who, um, who takes sin lightly. He is not like us in that regard. Worship is a privilege. It is appropriate for us to lament sin as an aspect of our worship. And it is important for us to seek God's perspective on our lives and to understand His attitude toward worship. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much that You have appointed worship as for our good. We confess to You that we have often taken it lightly that we perhaps often could look upon it the way that a lot of our culture does. Um, 
that we are coming to give you something to fill up a need in you or just to get some sort of emotional charge rather than understanding that we are interacting with a transcendent God who has personhood. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to repent. That you, We ask that you would help us to, to consider sin as you do. And Father, we ask that whatever you have set before us, that you would help us to endure it with grace. Father, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.